Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. A very interesting and special guest today, Dr. Leila Golestane Austin, the Executive Director of the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans. Welcome to Seldom Said, Leila. Thank you. It's great to be with you. It's our pleasure, I can assure you. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, uh, who you are, where you're from, and what's brought you to this time and place. Uh, sure. Um, I actually um, grew up in Iran, um, and I left the country when I was 16 years old um, to go to high school in Paris. My family decided to send me to Paris. This was um, in the early 80s. So we're talking about uh, after the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, and also the Iran-Iraq War had already started. Um, so I finished high school in Paris, and then I came uh, to the United States with a green card, actually. Um, my parents had applied for a green card uh, actually before the revolution even happened. Uh, at the time, you could um, um, apply for green cards through siblings who were U.S. citizens, and both of them had siblings who were U.S. citizens. So um, interestingly, by the time the, the green card actually became ready, uh, there were no, there was no longer any uh, U.S. embassy in Iran after the revolution, so we actually had to go to Athens, Greece, to get the green card. Um, but we did come. I came to the U.S. Um, in 1985 to go to college uh, with a green card, and I have been here ever since. Um, in terms of uh, my professional life, I... Um, uh, went to college, uh, got a sociology degree, um, and off to graduate school, master's in Middle East studies and um, international economics, and then I ended up getting a doctorate in political science from Columbia University. Um, and before PIA, I was actually working um, as both a professor and also a um, head of uh, certain programs or co-head of a program uh, for a study of global politics and religion at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. You seem incredibly uh, driven academically. Was that always the case of the family and yourself? Um, I'm sorry, what did you ask what, about the academic? You seem uh, rather driven academically. I was wondering whether you felt that was a family trait, something familial, or just you yourself? Yeah. Um, actually, partially myself. That's, it, it's interesting that you say that. My parents are both dentists, and I think, um, like any good immigrant family, they really wanted me to enter the medical field. Um, and I distinctly remember letting them know when I was in college that I was going to major in sociology, and I dropped the pre-med program. Um, and I think that curiosity also came from my background. Um, I was young when the revolution happened. Uh, I was around 11 years old and didn't really, I wanted to make sense of it. You know, I wanted to make sense of my past and my present. So uh, I decided to go into the social sciences and uh, that kind of led to another door being opened, just curiosity continuing until um, until I got the doctorate <laughs> in political science. So. So in terms of uh, going into the field of social science, that was that was completely myself. 
The revolution, as you mentioned, occurred before you left. Was there any consciousness in your family group? You perhaps were too young, but was there an awareness of the direction the revolution was going in? Um, to be honest, I don't think anybody knew the direction that the revolution was going in. Um, I, I don't even think the, the current government, you know, or the, or the revolutionary government at the time, uh, knew what the outcome would be. Uh, I think there was, um, a realization, uh, that the political situation was fraught. Um, but as you know, that never, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to predict when a revolution happens, obviously. But um, but I think that there was that um, uh, that awareness, uh, and I think that's why my parents went. They were actually in the United States a few years before the revolution. Both of them getting postgraduate degrees um, at the University of Michigan, and that's when they decided to apply for the green card. It was before the revolution because they knew there was dissatisfaction and, and some, but I don't think anyone predicted the direction uh, that it, it ended up going. Do you practice a rather culturally transient life going back to Iran and then back again to the States? Or do you simply feel you're permanently resided here? I am permanently resided here. I have personally not been back uh, since uh, since I left Iran. Uh, my mother has has come. Actually, they left late. They came here later, a, few, a couple years later than I did. Uh, my mother has gone back and forth, um, and I have family. I have a lot of family in the United States, so um, I would say I do practice a culturally transient life, but I don't actually physically uh, have not returned to Iran. Um, that is not to say that my, my children are not interested. Um, I ended up actually marrying uh, a non-Iranian American, <laughs> so that's where I get often. <laughs> um, and uh, and my, my children are both. Um, I always say I raised two half-breeds that are more, really more interested in, in their Iranian identity even than I am. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in my family, and we do practice uh, certain you know holidays, obviously, in uh, celebrate, and, and there's a lot of curiosity uh, in my family, but I don't physically go back. I have not been back. I've often found a great many people, not only academics, who have attachments to the old way, and they've stepped uh, a little bit frothfully into the new. They do have difficulty transmitting the love of culture and language to their children and grandchildren. The way you described your own children, it would seem that the language and transmission is no longer a problem. Uh, well, actually, in my own family, it was because <laughs> I thought, uh, because my, my husband is American, and actually when we were both, um, I mean, non-Farsi speaking, I should say, uh, we were both graduate students when my daughter was born um, up in New York City, and I, I did not speak to her in Farsi, um, just for practical reasons, I was very practical about it and, uh, because my husband didn't wouldn't understand it. Um, and she actually is to this day; she's 21 years old and in college. Very upset with me um, that I did not teach her the language. So she is interested. They have picked some up, both of my kids, um, and they really are very much interested in, in their Iranian um, heritage. I would say almost more than, <laughs> than the other side. So. Um, and, and they do seek it out, and my, my parents live in the area. 
as well. So they spend a lot of time with them, and they're very familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, the holidays and the food and the, um, you know, get-togethers. We have extended family reunions. So they do feel um, definitely Iranian. Many in this country, especially intellectually, have a love affair with Iranian poetry. It's a land of marvelous poets. Do you have any plans in the organization to promulgate or press for curriculum changes, perhaps on the public school level, to introduce the culture and the language? You know, in the past, we have had, uh, we've provided teachers and also families, you know, uh, Iranian families or families like myself, mixed families, uh, resources to celebrate the holidays um, accurately or to take the holiday to their school and uh, present the holiday. Uh, We've also done other, I mean, one of the things that the organization actually does is to promote an accurate image of the community. That's definitely one of the pillars of our mission. And things that we've done is we've supported programs in the past. For example, the Library of Congress um, did a program called 1,000 Years of the Persian Book, uh, which celebrated Persian language and literature, and PIA uh, sponsored that program along with the Library of Congress. And so and then we disseminated um, that, uh, uh, that information. Also, we did... Um, we sponsored also the tour of uh, the Cyrus Cylinder. I don't know if you remember that the Cyrus Cylinder, the King Cyrus the Great's um, uh, cylinder, which is known to be one of the uh, the first charters of human rights. Indeed, I'm aware of it. If you could explain it, though, to the listening audience, it'd certainly be appreciated. Sure. Um, but, well, I'm going to try and do this from memory. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're testing my historical efforts. Cyrus the Great, uh, you know, was was, was uh, the first, I guess, king of the, the nation of Iran, uh, dating 2,500 uh, years back. And he's uh, he's a beloved king. He unified uh, the nation, and and you know, the, the Iran is basically Iran since that. Um, uh, era of the Achaemenid Empire. He was the first of the rulers. Um, and he instituted some uh, reforms uh, and was, was known to be a benevolent king. Um, uh, you know, he basically respected the cultures of the, of the people that he conquered. Um, and he brought people uh, together, I would say that, um, you know, and um, the cylinder itself basically comes from... Um, uh, his his effort to bring peace and order uh, to the Babylonians at the time, which is uh, this is an area that that he uh, was ruling at the time as well, and he also repatriated uh, many displaced uh, peoples and restored temples and and sanctuaries and and as you may know, um, although it's not really uh, specifically mentioned, I don't think in the document. Um, uh, the the cylinders text has traditionally been um, seen or defined or, or by biblical scholars as corroborating evidence of his policy of the repatriation of the Jewish people uh, following their Babylonian captivity. Um, so he was quite a diplomat, uh, a, a statesman, and a politician. Um, and so you know we are proud <laughs> as, as 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 a nation too. You have every reason to be. 
When we speak of Pio, the organization that you're executive director of, can you give us a little bit of its history and focus, its purpose? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Pio was, uh, you know, basically, uh, it started, I would say, in 2007. I should also let you know that this is my third year as executive director, so um, I'm, I'm relatively new to Pio myself, but... It started in um, 2007, and um, two Iranian-Americans got together in uh, New York City. Um, and, you know, really the, the idea was that although as individuals, um, Iranian-Americans really had made significant strides in, in all aspects of, of American life um, coming here after uh, the 1978 Revo- uh, Islamic Revolution, you know, Iranian Americans are, as individuals, highly successful. Um, they're at the forefront of scientific and medical breakthroughs. They um, are uh, currently, as well, major uh, players in Silicon Valley, um, senior executives in Fortune 500 companies and uh, attorneys, and, you know, um, also uh, hold public office. Several of them have held public office in this country and participated in the U.S. military. Uh, but it was thought that this individual success uh, was really, uh, even though achieved in, in, facing, uh, in the face of many challenges um, that, that, you know, had, had the, the community had unique challenges, and I can talk a little bit about that, uh, but that there was no real effective community voice to help overcome um, some of those challenges that really translated into uh, burdensome immigration rules, uh, for example, that um, that uh, impeded family reunions um, or other discriminatory um, uh, issues that came after the, the hostage crisis uh, in, in America and also 9/11. Even though Iranians really had nothing to do with 9/11, but you know we got uh, we got somehow. Um, uh, we, we were also significantly impacted as an immigrant group from the Middle East. Um, so as a result of these, it was thought that it was, uh, it, it was time to basically, uh, since the four decades have passed since the revolution, uh, to build a voice for the community. Um, and that's how PIA basically started. There is a film a few years back, uh, I believe its name was Crash, won an Academy Award as Best Film of the Year. There's a very poignant scene in the film where an Iranian woman says, my God, they think we're Arabs. We're not Arabs. They think we're Arabs. Do you feel there is a cultural awareness in the American populace at large and in the media of who Iranians are? Uh I don't actually, and I and I think that um, you know that's partially because it's politically convenient, you know, to um, to just kind of bundle up all <laughs> people from uh, from the Middle East or that region as one. And I think it's partially also uh, our fault. You know, I think we need to, and I think that's what our organization is really trying to do is to educate, you know, the American public and and also. Um, you know, people of influence in the policymaking uh, arena of who we are, what we contribute, uh, and and what our specific issues are. Um, and you know, I think that um, the unfortunately uh, the ongoing tensions between the United States and Iran 
uh, have left sort of this, uh, this legacy of Iranian-American immigration that's really intimately tied to um, the, the post-revolutionary political relationship, which does not exist, as you know, between the two countries. Um, and I think that that has, has led to, um, you know, several instances of discrimination, starting with uh, Iranians being deported during the hostage crisis, um, to uh, the whole notion of axis of evil, you know, that came out after 9-11, um, about, you know, uh, countries that were sponsoring terrorism. But, of course, nobody um, from Iran has ever um, really been part of any kind of terrorist act on U.S. soil that has led to any deaths. So um, I think that um, there is that. Unfortunately, some of it is just political convenience, I think, uh, and some of it is just mis- uh, miseducation. So, yes, it is, uh, it is, you know, I think that region is seen as a monolithic whole, and I think people don't realize that uh, Iran and Iraq, you know, had an eight-year war. People still confuse the two countries, you know, as if they're the same Indeed. country. So, so yes, unfortunately that, that has not been, um, you know, um, we, we don't have accurate representation. I think that's what we are trying to, um, to achieve through PIA. It does uh, amaze me as well as I would think any concerned uh, American as to the depth of non-awareness that exists in the country when you speak of the Middle East and so forth, choosing uh, Iran as an enemy, it it just seems uh, self-serving rather than purposeful. We're going to break now for a moment. I'd love to pursue this thought when we get back. Uh, This is Robert, and the program is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. My name again is Robert. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Dr. Leila Golestani Austin, the executive director of the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans. Leila, if you could return to the discussion we had begun before the break in regard to the opaque nature of American media and politics toward Iran. Sure. Um, I can actually um, speak in terms of how, um, this, as you call it, this opaque nature is affecting uh, Iranian-Americans here. And I think a really good example of that is um, the executive order that was signed by the president in January of 2017 um, that resulted in what we call the travel ban or, or the Muslim ban is, is, is another name for it. Um, and it really, um, you know, our community uh, really feels that, uh, given that we are also uh, the majority of those impacted by this ban, uh, we feel that this is um, completely discriminatory. It's irrational because it's done in the name of national security um, and profoundly discriminates against our community um, simply due to our national origin. And I think that the ban... Um, creates um, is irreparable harm for Iranian-American families by separating families, um, disrupting the education of students, and um, categorizing every Iranian, uh, everyone of Iranian descent as a potential terrorist. Despite the fact that according to, um, you know, 
think tanks, even the Cato Institute here um, in Washington, D.C., no one of Iranian descent has been involved in the horrific and fatal acts of terror committed on U.S. soil. So I think, um, you know, people really don't realize who Iranian Americans are, where, you know, what they are coming from. Iranians are not among perpetrators of 9-11, for example, or um, or the nightclub, nightclub killings in Orlando or any of the other acts of terror that have taken place in the United States. And um, the one act, the San Bernardino uh, attack that actually led to this executive order, uh, it actually had an Iranian-American among the victims. And also the first responder on the scene was an Iranian-American. So I think there is a lot of... Um, scapegoating uh, for political convenience, really. Um, and none of the countries, you know, that where 9-11 perpetrators basically uh, came from are part of this ban. So we find it um, irrational, um, and it has led to a lot of harm. Uh, we hear stories in our organization of weddings being canceled, of grandparents not able to visit grandchildren or attend graduations of um you know, uh, just families being ripped apart uh, and other kinds of, of discrimination. And the, and the community is very concerned. Uh, that's really how we, um, we see it, and also in terms of the rise of hate crimes here. Do you feel that there is an element of lack of understanding that religiosity does not extend across the entire Middle East and Iran, in a semblance of similarity, there seems to be an attitude of painting Islam, frankly, with a broad brush, without an understanding of Sunni, Shia, Iran, Iraq, whatever the circumstance might be. Has uh, Paya made any effort to invite and alert people to uh, religious functions? Actually, we do a lot of sort of, uh, and we like to educate uh, the the public through our demographic information that we have about the community. And interestingly, I mean, I have to say this is this is not as as ED of Paya, but just as, as my own personal knowledge as an academic, that I think one thing that the American public does really does not uh, realize as well is that the majority of Muslims in the world don't even live in the Middle East. And, and I think that's really a, a misconception that people, you know, South Asia and, and Southeast Asia has many more Muslims, for example, than the Middle East. Um, Middle East in general is, is diverse um, ethnically and religiously. There are many Christians who live in, in the Middle East, uh, many Jews who live in the Middle East, and that actually is also the case for both the Iranian, uh, I mean, in Iran, we have a, a multiplicity of, of ethnicities, for example, uh, but also the diaspora community here is very religiously diverse. Uh, we have uh, many Iranian Jews who are mostly in L.A. There are Baha'is, there are um, Zoroastrians, there are Christians, and there are Muslims. Um, we actually also have done, you know, uh, Paya does an annual survey of, um, of Iranian Americans. That's one thing, actually, I'm very proud of because uh, it gives us scientific uh, objective data on, on what, the, you know, where the community is in terms of their concerns and 
um, and uh, how they identify, for example. And according to um, the 2016 survey where, where we asked this question, most Iranian Americans identify as um, by country of origin um, or their um, ethnicity, uh, their Persian American ethnicity, whereas only 10% identify by religion. Uh, and that, that could be either Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. Um, so, you know, it's, and, 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 you, and you are right that also that Iranians, uh, I think another big misconception about Iranians is that they are uh, all, you know, radical, <laughs> subscribe to radical Islam, where the majority uh, don't actually, I would say, especially here, but even increasingly in Iran, are uh, more secular, less religious than, than other countries in the Middle East. And, and also, actually, uh, according to the Pew Survey of World Religiosity, uh, apparently Iranians are less religious than Americans. So uh, there is a lot of misconceptions, I think. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. It's my pleasure. It struck me increasingly, as I do have uh, colleagues who are Iranian by heritage, and walking down a street in Iran, they'll encounter people with a Disney World t-shirt, people wearing sunglasses, people without hijab. And yet, uh, that doesn't seem to make the media or make the evening news. Yeah. Have you thought about your own station, your own process of illuminating and expanding upon the understanding? Uh, you know, I think Kaya really has tried very much to um, build bridges, uh, people-to-people bridges, um, so that we do have that understanding. We actually have tried to bring in the past, for example, we brought uh, medical school chancellors here. We tried to bring, um, um, in, in conjunction with, a, with another organization, bring uh, Iranian national soccer team here. So we've We've attempted, um, I would say, in the past three years since I've been at PIA, uh, cultural diplomacy efforts, but unfortunately that has all come to a halt uh, with, uh, with the travel ban and the current political situation. Um, we, we, we are not able to do that, so we have sort of put that on pause for now. Given the way you're concentrating so strongly on alleviating the misconceptions on both sides, can you describe for the listening audience if there was indeed a moment, an epiphanal moment, that Damascus moment where you said, I'm going to spend my life, professional life, making cultural advocacy a lifetime focus? Did something occur? Was it an ideology, an effect, a course you took, an event on the street? What happened? Um, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I, as I said, I was working in sort of the academic space, and I think as um, as part of the this, this transitional generation um, of Iranian Americans, I sort of I have one foot in each culture, um, and as as a teacher, and uh, and as I said, as a mother to two half breeds who are, who are very fascinated by their identity, I'm constantly really reflecting. Um, on my own experience um, in and out of these different spaces. And I think that um, the Iran American community that I work in is really the same community that uh, in marginal ways really reflects who I am. And I think this 
space uh, became increasingly, I was sort of looking at it from an academic standpoint, you know, um, and I think it, uh, I increasingly wanted to actually um, do real work and actually um, help people, um, ordinary people in this, um, uh, in this intersectional space. So the opportunity actually came to me, um, and I decided to take it. And I think in academia, you know, we, we sort of live in a bubble sometimes, and um, it's really important to be on the ground and actually help people um, on the ground level. So um, I wouldn't say it was a moment. I would say that I was really uh, working on it. <laughs> for, uh, and when the opportunity came, I jumped. Are there PIA efforts, therefore, that you are especially proud of? Examples that you wish people to know more about things that you feel have been successful? Uh, yes, actually. Um, you know, I think I told you about our work on the on the travel ban. I'm, I'm very proud of that. We, um, we uh, were actually along with... Um, with two other Iranian-American organizations um, and also um, some 25 indiv individual plaintiffs, we challenged uh, the ban um, and the refugee bans in federal court, and I provided live testimony for that. Um, and we continue to do that. Um, we continue our advocacy work on that, I think, that uh, and, and really bring it together with uh, helping uh, Iranian-Americans protect their civil liberties. Um, so I am proud of that. Um, at the same time, I think that, um, you know, I, I really am very proud of the approach of our organization. Uh, we really work hard to remain in a credible space. We're a nonpartisan organization. Um, and this is really not an easy space to be in. <laughs> it's, it's really... Um, it's it's really much easier to be partisan and sensationalist, I think, especially in the in the current political environment. Um, and but we really believe that it's uh, more credible and will will achieve uh, more lasting, viable policy um, that benefits um, our community and these polarized and and challenging times that are really um, marked by anti-immigration rhetoric, uh, anti-diplomacy. Uh, you know, a majority of Iranian Americans, I would say our surveys show 80 to 90 percent still have close family in Iran, um, and the majority do not want war with Iran. So we work uh, in the diplomacy space as well. And also, uh, you know, unfortunately, an environment that's fanning the flames of identity politics. So we think that the only way for us to uh, work through these difficulties is to uh, keep a, a straight head and, you know, a balanced approach and work uh, both sides of the aisle and try and, you know, um, stay out of the extremes. Um, another big, uh, big win for us, uh, this, this actually right after the midterm elections, these recent midterm elections, is PIA actually has an affiliated um, political action committee called IAPAC. And we proudly endorsed and supported five Iranian-American women who led really impressive campaigns in their respective races, three in state legislatures, one for Congress and one for a judgeship in North Carolina. 
And four of these women made history by becoming the first Iranian-Americans to win those races. Um, so we're really proud of that. They ran um, very viable um, and, uh, and um, races, and they are very capable uh, candidates. And, you know, for us, that's a really big win. That's an area that we work in, uh, supporting Iranian-Americans um, to run for office because they end up representing our community. Um, in public positions. They they help formulate public policy that benefits our community or at least doesn't hurt our community. Um, and they also play an important role in, in changing perceptions about Iranian-Americans. Um, so that's an area that um, we work very hard in, and I'm very proud of the current results. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman from the New York metropolitan area to win a seat in the House of Representatives, was once asked, what is more difficult for you in appearing before audiences, being an African-American or being a woman? And she said, without question, being a woman. Given the antithetical property of something like that, what would be your own attitude, Layla, as to the primary difficulty, being female or being Iranian? very good question. <laughs> That's a hard toss-up. I was actually thinking about that uh, recently. I would say um, for us, unfortunately, both, but I think that within our community, um, and actually one of the biggest misconceptions also about both Iran and Iranian-Americans, you know, I think that, that uh, Americans have is that women somehow are not empowered, and, and I do want to say that women both in our community and also in Iran, even under this current regime, are highly empowered. They are all highly educated. In Iran, women can work any job they want. They're bus drivers who are women, for example, you know, and uh, truck drivers and cab drivers. Um, and 70% of university students in Iran are, are women, and that seems to be um, kind of a, a, a global uh, trend, I think, um, which is another, which is another topic, uh, but I do think that in our own organization and generally in the public sphere, women are um, less present, uh, both in the country, as you know, and in, in our own Congress. You know, and, and I think that uh, after the midterm elections, that has also changed, which is really good to see. Uh, but our community is really no different from the national average, in, in that in that sense. So this, I think this when is important for us as Americans and as Iranian-Americans. The sign of a good program usually occurs when I look at the watch and discern that we have one minute to go in our second segment. I would wonder, and we only have those 60 seconds before we break again, I would wonder whether the whiff of change has crossed your mind and whether you've ever considered stepping away from your directorship and putting the hat on the ring and getting involved in politics. As I say, we're almost up to the end of the second segment, so perhaps we can allow that to ruminate for a moment, and you can come back with something that might be surprising, declaring your candidacy here, there, and everywhere. But in point of fact, there does seem to be a need for a more aggressive, a more honest and a more forward presentation of the beauty of Iranian culture, politics, and history. 
hopefully uh, these changes will be rectified in the near future. We shall certainly have to wait and see. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Once again, welcome back. My name is Robert. Program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Our extremely interesting guest, Dr. Leila Golestane Austin, the Executive Director of the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans. I must apologize, uh, Leila, for positing such a loaded question before the break, but have you ever considered uh, stepping away and becoming the face of Iranian politics in a given area in the United States? Well, thank you for that question, Robert, and I, I think that you're making me think about it now. <laughs> uh, but actually, I, I have not. I, I think that, I, you know, I've just started. Um, I, I'm still very engaged in what I do um, at PIA, and I think there's a lot, there are many challenges that we still face. Um, this is, uh, I, I'm, again, very proud that there are women who are out there uh, and, and running openly as Iranian-Americans, which, which makes me even more proud. Um, and as I said, three of them have won state legislatures in the state of Florida, the state of New York, and the state of Georgia. Uh, and we now have a judge also in North Carolina. Um, uh, of course, there are also Iranian men who are, you know, the lieutenant governor, governor of Washington state is, is also Iranian, Cyrus Habib. Uh, but I think that this, um, hopefully we are moving forward, but there's still a huge challenge in our community really to um, get people to be civically engaged. Um, and I think this is somewhat natural. This is a, a relatively young diaspora community um, that, you know, fled um, political persecution and oppression um, and they're very shy from being involved uh, in politics. And I think that the biggest challenge for all Iranian-American organizations really is to, uh, to engage and to get them to really participate. We have, um, you know, in one of the, the largest um, regions in, in the, you know, with the largest population uh, in Southern California, for example, in Orange County, we have very few registered uh, Iranian-Americans. They don't, they don't vote. You know, their representatives don't know them. Um, and I think part of that is really just focusing on economic success as, as a young, you know, immigrant community. Uh, but we work very hard through uh, our next generation programs. We're very committed to that, to encourage uh, younger Iranian-Americans uh, to go into uh, public service. We provide internships for uh, work on uh, Capitol Hill, for example, and other public service positions. Um, and so we think this is really um, important. So I'm still working. I still have a lot of work to do here. But uh, um, the question and the confidence. Our <laughs> 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 pleasure, I can assure you. There's the old Socratic argument that one reaches a point philosophically where they must, but they cannot. What would be an imperative? What would be some of those things that you feel must be done, notwithstanding the circumstance or the time constraint? You know, I think the civic participation <laughs> is what I just mentioned and investing uh, in future leaders. And I think the, the one that is also very imperative is really to try and um, 
uh, which is something that we are trying to do, is to get accurate um, information about the community. Uh, we don't have, we don't even know how many Iranian-Americans there are in this country. Uh, we are estimating around a million, uh, but there's really no way of counting. Um, you know, the census does not count uh, people from Iran. Um, and we actually worked on this project as well where they were, um, I don't know if you're aware, but there was a, a, a project that we advocated for to include a MENA category, that's M-E-N-A, that stands for Middle East and North Africa uh, category in the 2020 census. And we work, we've been working on this for 10 years. They've been testing it uh, in different communities. Um, and unfortunately, um, it just recently um, was not uh, was was you know it did not go through um, because they decided to introduce it as a race category rather than an ethnicity category. Uh, but that's beside the point. But if I if I could, I would you know if I had a million dollars, I would actually do a, a multi-dimensional demographic study of the Iranian American community. Um, I would capture, you know, a team of people, uh, uh, or uh, capture all uh, every identity, collect stories from the community, um, and this is something that the organization is really working on because we need that information in order to be effective um, in in our advocacy work and in our policy work. Uh, and I think that, um, and and also to just show how much this community contributes uh, to U.S. society and how dedicated we are. Um, to America. So I think that's something that is, is a challenge <laughs> uh, on many levels and also just civic participation. I would say those are the, the two most imperative. Um, we spoke earlier in the program about the necessity to make people aware that Iran is not Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Is there, however, the opposite side of the coin whereby a Middle Eastern lobby if joined tightly together, might be more effective congressionally than one country alone, even a country as important and large as Iran. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think, again, we're not talking about countries. We're talking about Americans here who <laughs> come from those places. So I don't really, I don't do anything on behalf of the Iranian government or the, or the country there. Um, the, but you, what you just put, what you just mentioned is very important. It's important for us to work in coalitions. We work uh, in coalitions with other Iranian-American organizations, but also with other Middle Eastern organizations, um, Arab organizations, Muslim organizations, South Asian communities, uh, and also civil liberties uh, uh, organizations and national immigration Law centers, you know, all, all kinds of um, organizations that affect that really have the same issues that we do. It is it is very important for us to do that. You know, we have many as a community organization. We have many stakeholders, and um, and we have to really kind of um, focus on all and to work with everyone to advance our interests. So it's kind of you know we have to be flexible. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and work on all fronts. It seems as if the organization to some degree is poetry in progress. You're flexible to the extent of doing what needs to be done at a moment's notice. Are you finding long-range plans difficult? Um, you know, I think that one thing that, that our community needs to understand is because we are all, you know, as individuals, highly successful and work in the private sector is that 
policy and um, advocacy is by nature a long-term effort. Uh, so I think that that is something we need to, uh, you know, it, it's bit by bit. And I think that things change uh, both as, uh, you know, more Amer- as, as we turn more towards younger Iranian Americans who were born here. I think they have different attitude um, that, you know, will change the way the community is defined. And if you look at any immigrant community, I think you, you see that. And I define myself as the transitional uh, generation, you know. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that um, as a community that is really stuck in this um, in this sort of geopolitical impasse, <laughs> because there are no relations, you know, and we are such a convenient scapegoat, we never know what's going to hit us, you know. Um, so it it really depends on the times. Uh, but I think it, you know they they always say the times can define you know uh, that define the leader or the or the community in this sense and I think that we have to navigate uh, within um, within you know these the changing times and how our community is either viewed or or targeted um, I don't know if you're aware but just very recently there was um, I guess sort of a, a supposed joke by Senator Lindsey Graham about DNA testing it was going on yes. you know, sort of along this yes. where he said that um, that uh, God forbid he finds out that his DNA is, uh, you know, Iranian, and that that was a that was, you know, that was a scary comment for our community. That's, that's we didn't find that to be very funny, and it's um, it's so we we have to you know drop everything and work on that and write him a letter, ask to see him, and you know, and ask for an apology. Um, and so it's really, uh, you know, navigating through the times is, is you never know, as I said, what's going to hit you. But I think also as a community, you know, sometimes because we are so successful as individuals, we tend to get too comfortable, um, in that, in that sense of privilege and everything's fine. And of course, everyone knows that we're, you know, we run Twitter and the, the, you know, CEO of Uber is Iranian American. And, you know, and how could people think that, you know, we're not great contributors to the American fabric? But um, we have to be aware. We thought that everyone knew who we were, you know, like 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, but it's really not the case. So uh, that's something that we, we have to work on harder. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, um, interesting sort of uh, always being prepared uh, but also changing gears. And I think that our organization and other organizations have, have had to do that in terms of refining even our missions, you know, um, to move uh, in different directions and, and figuring it out. As I said, we're a young community, but I think this is, this is a good moment. It's, it's, it's a bad moment for us because it's very challenging, uh, but at the same time it's a good moment to, um, to kind of, you know, get everyone... Uh, to become more active. And that's, I think, something that um, I would like to focus on. Returning to something we discussed at the beginning of the interview, uh, and that was uh, the addition to curriculum development, there are minority groups in this country who have sent out precy of lesson plans and so forth that need to be added to especially global studies or Southeast Asian studies. Is there an educational effort on the part of PIA 
to contact school boards, to contact uh, teachers in schools on the high school and public school level, to in some way instill the need to discuss Iran as a culture, not per se using one example, uh, a discussion of Alexander alone, but of Darius as well. Um, you know, not systematically. I'm not aware of, of any such efforts systematically. I know that there have been efforts to, for example, um, uh, establish Farsi schools to get funding, uh, you know, local funding for uh, teaching our language, you know, and, and those kinds of things. But in terms of this educational effort, uh, we not not officially, but we actually, it's interesting that you're saying this because... Uh, we have just started to talk to uh, some Iranian-American authors, actually some who are members of ours, um, and who have brought this to my attention um, and want help to... Uh, they've written, you know, memoirs, for example, uh, of growing up in America as an Iranian-American and, and getting those uh, in the public school curricula. Uh, so that's something that we are just starting to... Um, to really work on. So maybe in, in, our, in, your, in a future show, I can tell you more about that. <laughs> but uh, that is something that we are working on. Uh, but I don't know of any systematic effort um, up until now. But it is, it, is a good, it is a good suggestion and one that we are actually thinking about and, and working on. For someone of the listening audience, whether they be in academia or not, who wishes to become part of the activism of the struggle, how might they equate themselves and get involved with your organization? Um, I would say to uh, join our Facebook page um, and uh, visit our website and definitely also uh, we, I, I can give you an email uh, if that, if that uh, works. Uh, we would love to hear from everyone. Um, and the, the website is just www.paya.org. And the email is info at paia, P-A-A-I-A dot org. Um, and just to join our Facebook page, we are very responsive to comments and suggestions. <laughs> um, and we welcome all participation. Is there any literary or journalistic material that individuals can plug into? Yes. If you go on our website, we have our reports. You can also sign up to receive our newsletter. Um, and we've done, we have several reports that we've done in the past that are available uh, on the website. And, and all kinds, you know, articles we write and op eds and such. Now, Leila, again, you seem like the spinning top that can't stop dancing. You have so many plates in the air. <laughs> What are your immediate plans for the near future? Uh, you know, what, what I'm really uh, working on is, or what I'm interested in, I should say, um, is a, sort of a focus on leadership. And I think that's um, a broader focus on leadership. And I think that's important both, again, I, I think the Iran-American community is really a reflection also of, of the, the larger uh, U.S., you know, American <laughs> community. Uh, but I think that uh, increasingly it's becoming apparent that in our, you know, these turbulent times where polarization seems to be um, at its height, we really need to find um, a, a, a sense of moral purpose, really, to channel our ambitions and talents to 
uh, increase opportunities uh, lives for li- for the lives of others. And I've, I've come across this in even my teaching in the past that there really isn't this awareness of, of community leadership. Um, so one thing I really do want to work on is to, you know, in, in some ways Paya does that to cultivate a leadership for the community. We do that both at the top influencer level, but also uh, among our next generation. And I think this is really key to building a robust community, any community, you know, whether it's your neighborhood community or your local community, or, uh, but also for your own American community. So I'm really working on putting some thought into that and, and how to do that and, and how to really get people to uh, move beyond being passive observers to, um, to being active, really, and exercising their rights and participating um, in their own future. So I think, again, that's something that we all could use, right? <laughs> Indeed, yes. Um, Is there uh, then uh, a personal memoir in the offing? <laughs> Probably I should start taking notes. <laughs> 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 Notes are a leap of faith, one way or the other. We're about yeah. to come to the end of the program, uh, Leila. Can you take a little 10-second blurb and have some final thoughts for the listening audience? Um, just, you know, just that, you know, final thoughts. I'd just like to do, um, continue again in the work that I do, that I welcome um any any participation, any um, any um, thoughts that anyone might have, and and really to I think to call, to call on everyone, whoever's listening is not part of our community, uh, to help really move um, our nation as a whole to a place where we trust each other more. You know, I think that's really important, and where um, the voice of ordinary people can be heard. Um, and um, must, we're more open to being more significant. <laughs> I must unfortunately bring a, a rather quick hour to a close. Our guest has been Dr. Leila Golestani austin of Paya. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said.